Hello and welcome to the Photography-ish podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Photography-ish podcast. Later on, we've got a fantastic interview with David Griffiths, who is an Anglesey-based photographer and YouTuber. He's got some great insights for you into how he works and his life and his photography. We're going to finish the show later on with talking about the importance of audio in video and so in in relation to youtube videos and vlogging and all that kind of stuff but we're going to kick start the show today with what you need for your home office setup so with more of us than ever before really working from home at the moment and potentially for the foreseeable future you kind of need more than a kitchen table in order to work properly if you're looking at a home office setup there's some great ideas I'm going to, going to talk you through that might just help you work that little bit better. So the first one is you need a distraction-free space. Being at home brings with it so many distractions. You see jobs all around you all the time and you think you can squeeze them into your day, but really they take you away from that work time. If you've got children, they can often be a distraction too. Your space that you make needs to be needs to allow you to be productive and get that work done. You really need a proper desk space as part of your home office setup as well. Whether you use a laptop or a desktop or a tablet, having somewhere where you can sit and work properly is so important. You can even get stand-up desks which are better for your back and are a slightly healthier option. You need to make sure you have a decent chair as well which isn't going to ruin your back. Something which is supportive but which allows you to be comfortable at the same time. It keeps you from hunching over, that's, that's one of the key parts of it. You like to be sat down for a number of hours per day, so you need to make sure your back, your posture and your spine are fully supported. Natural light is the best option for working in, so making sure you have plenty of this bouncing around your home office setup is very important. It will help you not strain your eyes and also focus on your work. Obviously we can't guarantee good weather all the time, so there will be days where due to cloud and rain and weather conditions, those days are darker than others, so if natural lighting isn't sufficient during those environmental changes you need to make sure you've got plenty of decent lighting too if you're working online sending emails logging into websites stuff like that you don't want to be waiting for loading time of your broadband you need a fast broadband connection that can keep up with you you'll be able to download things quicker upload things faster and it'll help you to do your work in a breeze Another great idea is getting a surge protector. Regardless of where you live, power surges do happen and these can affect your electrical equipment and create damage. Even little surges can cause issues to your tech. You might not think that you need a printer in your home office setup, but you are probably going to need to print something off at some point. You don't need an expensive printer by any means, just something cheap which can print black and white will, will cover for any printouts that you need to make. One of the most important things to work in is a clear space. If your home office setup is a mess, your work is likely to be a mess. A clear space helps you to have a clear mind to be creative in. A cluttered space can distract you and damage your productivity. So if you use these top tips to make your home office setup as work friendly as possible, regardless of how long you'll be using it for, you'll have a more productive space in the short term rather than a useless place in the long term.
So let's get on to the interview part of today's podcast. Today we've got David Griffiths on the channel. Hi DG, how are you doing today? For those listeners who perhaps don't know who you are, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello Joe, thanks ever so much for inviting me on. I've never been better. I live on the island of Anglesey and I almost exclusively shoot in North Wales. I don't go very far afield at all. Uh, And for that reason, Anglesey and Northern Snowdonia, I know them like the back of my hand. I've got countless fantastic locations right on my doorstep. So I spend my whole time here shooting the weather conditions, the tides, the seasons, the light, all on locations that I know really well so I can make the most of them. I've been doing it a very, very long time. I started with landscape photography, uh, dare I say it, over 40 years ago. Uh, And so hopefully I'm getting just about beyond being a beginner by now. So what some people might not know about you, DJ, is that you made the switch a while ago to change to micro four thirds. What was your decision behind that? And what made you settle on the gear that you eventually did? Well, you may recall, Joe, that I came out on one of your UTOGS meetups when we went to Gordale Scar at Malham uh, in the Yorkshire Dales. And at that point, I was carrying a bag full of Nikon glass. And I was about to upgrade it because I could see that the kit glass that I had really wasn't cutting it. And I looked at the weights to replace those lenses with pro glass, and it was going to be horrific. So I thought, "Mm, there's got to be a lighter option. The reason is that I spend an awful lot of my time in the mountains uh, and particularly wild camping. My bag can get extremely heavy with my camping gear, let alone carrying photographic equipment uh, and video equipment. So I looked at my options and I realised that if I was to go the route of Micro Four Thirds, I could get a lot more bang for my buck in terms of the lenses that I would need. So I'm looking at things like obviously Panasonic systems and the Olympus systems. Now the Olympus EM1 Mark II had been around about four years when I jumped in. It's quite long in the tooth, but it's an absolutely brilliant camera. And I'm not really a gearhead, frankly, I don't really worry about pixel peeping. I don't worry about sensor size. As far as I'm concerned, pretty much every camera you might find in a camera shop with an interchangeable lens system is going to be pretty good by comparison to what I had available to me back when I started. So Micro Four Thirds, no problem at all. But what really swung it for me was Olympus have a lens which goes from 12 millimeters to 100 millimeters. So full frame equivalent of 24 to 200, which is a colossal range, but it's pro glass and it's got a constant F4. It's absolutely perfect for landscapes. So I bought that one lens, put it on the camera and 18 months later, it's hardly been off. Now I have bought a couple of other lenses since for specific requirements, but when I'm out with my landscapes, which is what I do 95% of the time, that kit is absolutely perfect. And in addition to that, of course, uh, that particular camera doubles as quite a nice vlogging camera. So I can swing the screen around, frame up a shot where I'm standing in front of it and do a piece to camera without even having to change my equipment. You live at Anglesey and you're a real advocate for North Wales, but where is your favourite location and why? I live about three miles away from Llandwyn Island, with its very famous landmarks overlooking the Llyn Peninsula and the beach at Newborough and the forest and the coastline and all that good stuff that people come from miles around to shoot. 
I also live even closer to the church in the sea, but neither of those would be on my favorite location list. Actually, my favorite location is an area on the north of the island, the northwest pointy bit that sticks out up towards the Isle of Man uh, called Carmel Head. And either side of Carmel Head, there's a high cliff top coastline that runs along to a place called Kemlin Bay. If you go eastwards or if you go southwards down to a place called Trith and which is absolutely fabulous. There's a stone arch, there's a lake, there are forests. But the main thing about that neck of the woods is 99% of the time you'll have it entirely to yourself. And Carmel Head is probably three or four miles from the nearest parking. So you have to hike to get there. It's well worth it, but most other people don't bother. And so if I want a quiet spot on the island all to myself with stunning photography to be had, that's my spot. On the mainland, more difficult to choose because I've got more to choose from. But I think actually, probably, I would say the ridge that runs from the Glidders northwards up to a mountain called Carne de Villast, which is the most northerly peak as you come over from the island. So it's the first one I come to. If I go up there and walk along that ridge, not as far as the Glidders, because they can get a bit busy, but anywhere along there, there's fantastic wild camping. And of course, when you're up at 3000 feet, the views are spectacular. There's foreground interest. You can point your camera in any direction you need to, to get light. Uh, it's pretty stunning up there. It's hard work to get up there, but that's what makes it all the more worthwhile as far as I'm concerned. So I know you've got a very busy life apart from photography, but where do you find inspiration for everyday life and photography too? I must admit, I, I don't really find it hard at all to find inspiration. Luckily, I can look out of my window and see the mountains. And of course, during the recent lockdown period, that's been pretty difficult because it would be easier not to be able to see them. Uh, looking across there on a daily basis and thinking, oh my goodness, look at that light, and I can't do anything about it, has been kind of tough. But I'm really lucky where I live. Um, I'm right by the coast. I've got a lovely 80-acre lake and a river runs right by the house. And I'm a really kind of upbeat positive person uh, I couldn't possibly have lived the sort of life that I live where um, I've always run my own businesses and you can't do that if you're negative and down in the dumps because your business will fall flat on its ass straight away so yeah I, I don't really find it very difficult I look out my window and there's always something to inspire me so just like me you've got a YouTube channel you're a vlogger as well how important do you think that platform is to your photography today and other people's journey in photography too? You know, I think YouTube can be as much a poison chalice as it can be a force for good. So many people I know have started YouTube channels and then not seen it through. They've fallen by the wayside. They found it to be really hard work. They've put themselves under pressure. Uh, and also it takes time so people could be putting out really good quality stuff and yet nobody's watching their subscriber growth is glacially slow so I think the fact that I have that sort of positive attitude 
and also for the first 18 months couldn't care less you could tell you've only got to watch some of the old stuff and you can see how uh, how i'd go out and show no enthusiasm for what i was doing so it took a long long time to improve but i was enjoying what i was doing i really like editing video i like putting a montage together and cutting in audio and all that sort of stuff that goes with it as much as i enjoy the process of doing stills photography so it really wasn't hard work but in terms of improving my photography, I think it's been really helpful because when you're putting yourself out there, you're kind of forced to work at improving because if you don't improve, people will soon notice it. By far, the most important thing is I've made loads of friends out of it. The number of people that I go out and shoot with, I now, like yourself, classes, you know, good friends. You and I have been out together a couple of times, well, more than a couple of times, actually, um, and enjoyed each other's company. That simply wouldn't have happened without my YouTube channel. And finally, what do you wish you'd known when you were first starting out? What would you go back and tell yourself? Actually, that's quite easy. I did landscape photography in the early 80s for about five years. And back then I was processing my own slide film because obviously it would have cost me an arm and a leg to uh, take my films to Boots to be developed. And I was living in a bedsit and, you know, setting up a dark room just wasn't feasible. But I think what I would have done is I, I would have stuck at it. If I could go back and say, hey, young man, stop mucking about with all these ladies and get out there with your camera and get better at it. And part of the reason for that is looking back, I've been lucky enough to have been reasonably successful, to have been lucky enough to travel the world and all without a camera. There's so many places I've been to that I know now landscape photographers say, what, you went there? You were in Death Valley without a camera? You were in the Californian Highlands without a camera? What's wrong with you? I think I would have stuck at it. And I think if I had, I could easily, easily have, have turned it into a full-time business 20 years ago. Um, because if I look at where it's going now, because if I project forward five or ten years, who knows where I'll be in terms of making a living from photography. I kind of don't need to particularly, but, you know, as lifestyles go, I'm sure there are worse ways to put food in the cupboard. Thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast this week, David. If you want to know more about DG, head to dgriff.gallery where you can find out all about his portfolio, his background. He's got a blog on there. You can even hire him. You can go and spend an afternoon with him on a workshop, find out about his gear. There's a link to his YouTube channel, all that fantastic stuff. So I wanted to talk about the importance of audio in video. Maybe you're thinking about making YouTube videos like I do. Perhaps you've already started creating content, but you're not happy with the audio that you're creating alongside the video work. However, you want to approach it. Let's talk about the importance of audio in video because you know what? It's really important. Let's start with a little bit of imagination. Take yourself in, in your mind to the cinema, which might be quite difficult today, or even watching a film on the sofa, which is perhaps a bit more relatable. Movies aren't just images. If you think of the audio in the film too, clear audio helps us to hear those moving conversations and epic speeches before a battle. Music is so important too because it moves us and guides us through the film and brings out emotion. From being scared to shedding tears, the soundtrack of a film is an entity within itself which is so important to the overall process. 
hopefully you can see that video and audio go hand in hand and that's the key thing to start with. So how do you create good audio? There's so much importance on audio and video. So one of the first things to do is test the way that you're currently capturing your speech. If you rely on an inbuilt microphone, it might not be ideal. You also need to tally up the audio to the thing that you're creating. If you're planning on shooting 4K video, for example, you probably want crystal clear audio to go alongside it. Capturing audio is such an important job, which is why there are dedicated sound engineers working in the likes of TV and film. For YouTube videos, an external microphone mounted on and plugged into your camera of choice is pretty spot on. Different microphones offer different qualities of audio, so do a bit of research and maybe even test some out. For my YouTube videos, I film with a GoPro because they're small, they're fairly affordable, they can take a bit of a battering and they capture high quality video too. But they have terrible audio. So that's why I record directly into an audio recorder that's in my pocket with a microphone attached to me, just like I'm doing the podcast today. I came up with a solution after a couple of failed vlogs. I could easily plug a lapel microphone into the camera and capture decent vocals. But the reason I choose an external device is because I don't want to be tied to the camera. That's So many people ask me that and that's that's my main reason. I don't like being tied somewhere. I often film myself well away from the camera talking about the landscape of the image that I'm trying to capture. If I was using an onboard microphone, it wouldn't pick me up. And if I was connected to the camera, I wouldn't be able to venture that far away either. You can get wireless ones these days. So I'd have a microphone on me and there would be a receiver going directly into the camera, but they are quite expensive. So many viewers of YouTube videos will simply turn off if the audio is terrible. Great audio can often make up for poor visuals, but the other way around doesn't work at all. If you can't understand what is being said or are simply listening to wind noise, you'll be unlikely to stick around and watch. And there's so much content readily available on our screens, there's a bit of a battle for views. So the importance of audio and video has perhaps never been greater. Thank you ever so much for joining me on the Photography-ish podcast this week. hope you enjoyed the topics that we covered and I hope you enjoyed the interview with David Griffiths as well. Make sure to go over onto YouTube, check out his videos and subscribe to him wherever you can as well. I'll be back soon with another Photography-ish podcast. But until then, stay safe and look after each other.